This is the Dr. Chad Podcast. Biohack your testosterone. More sex drive. More energy. More lean muscle. Feel and be your best in three, two, one. Today's podcast is sponsored by Fullscript. Go to the website, get 10% off. It's the safest source for practitioner-grade supplements. Go there now. Cool. All right. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, with me here is uh, David Bull. I've known him for many years and grew up with his kids, but I really believe that he's got an amazing, uh, really powerful story, and I really want uh, everybody to hear it. So welcome, David Bull. Thanks, Chad. Good. Glad to see you. Thanks for having me on. I uh... I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think this is a really great message um, and a great communication you're putting out there. So thanks for doing what you do. All right. I love it. So, yeah, um, I mean, you're, you're welcome to um, just tell people about your background. Uh, you got a really neat story. And um, really what I'm interested in is the why behind everything. Like what, what, like what led you to who you are, but why did you become who you are now? Sure, sure. Well, there are a couple perspectives I could use in telling that story, but let's start from the beginning. I, I was actually born in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. I was raised in West Dallas, a suburb here of Milwaukee, and had the benefit of growing up in a wonderful, loving home. Um, I was adopted by a couple who was told that they couldn't have children, and I was everything that they ever wanted, and they made sure I knew that. There was never any doubt about that. I felt loved. I felt supported. Um, they were... Um, upwardly mobile in terms of their careers and the business that they ran and they provided a great lifestyle for us and inclusive in that lifestyle was the opportunity to spend some time out in the lakes. We, we grew up in the summer times and on a lot of weekends out at Lake Beulah and that really informed a lot of my life, right? I had one perspective in town growing up in the suburbs and ordinarily it was an ordinary life in every way. I went to school, I made some friends. But in the summertime, we got to experience these other things, and I got to experience other people and other perspectives. And I think it really informed a good part of my growing up in that I was socialized in ways I never expected to be socialized before. So despite the fact that I had an inward disposition to be a little socially concerned or a little socially awkward, I, I, I was socialized across the board with adults, children, people from out of state, different from socio, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And it was a heck of an experience. Um, well, the whys were, um, I needed that. I needed that perspective because I grew up with a head full of doubts. I had maybe more so than most people. Um, I understand we all go through developmental challenges and milestones in, in our lifetime. And we all have questions about ourselves, but mine were in, in, interesting because I grew up with this idea that I had been given away for some reason. So there must be wrong, something wrong with me. And that, that's not unusual for adoptees or people who have been relinquished to think, to wonder about, well, what were the reasons behind that? And of course, the mind confounds things or confabulates information. And my young mind suggested that there must be something wrong with me. And that's why I was adopted. So that informed a lot of my growing up. So as a result, I learned to be really great at adapting to any situation. Right? I'd walk into a room, I'd look around and I'd say, Okay, what, what does a guy have to do to get, get along around here? And that's an interesting disposition, right? It's, it's one of keeping oneself safe, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's not where we want to be today. We, it, it's not on the growing edge. It's, it's limiting our ability to um, understand ourselves and understand our relationships. But, but anyway, we'll get into more of the whys of that going forward because I wanted to tee that up and, and let you know that kind of informed my life. So after I went through this wonderful upbringing, I went off to college. 
And um, I realized that um, I had a lot of experiences that most of the people didn't have. And I joke about this because I remain friends with some of those people today. But I saw some of these people acting like I acted five years before I got there, right? They were exploring things in their lives. They were doing silly things, probably making some unhealthy decisions. And I looked at these folks and I thought, what am I doing here? Who are these people, right? I experienced this before. I've been through that, been there, done that. It was tough to relate to them, but at the same time, I guess it was it was freeing in some ways. But but I went through that college experience, and it wasn't the easiest thing in the world for me because again, I had to adapt, and it was a new situation. I had to learn new new relationships. I had to understand what college expected of me. Um, I went to a Jesuit university without having any religious background at all, so that added a little bit of uh, additional. I guess, um, stress to um, that adaptation part. How do, how do I adapt in this environment if I don't uh, share the beliefs of everybody here? And boy, if these Jesuit professors and my Jesuit advisor finds, finds out, it, does that mean there's something wrong with me? Does that mean that I'm going to be outed? Um, again, this theme of thinking something's wrong with me and not necessarily being able to assimilate into an environment of who I am. And ultimately, what, what this time reminded me of is that I didn't really have a true sense of self or I didn't have a confidence in myself. And I don't mean self-confidence in the way that I had some, some ego that would allow me to succeed at, at levels unbeknownst to most men. I mean, a healthy ego strength that could say, okay, this is who I am. These are my values. This is the life I'm trying to live today. Um, I just went with the flow and adapted. And it meant for a pretty isolating time. And isolating is, is an interesting word. It, it started to illustrate not necessarily how lonely I felt in my life, but different. I felt entirely different. I felt lost. I felt, but all these other people, even these silly, do, people doing silly things have this instruction manual. They all seem to know what they're, they're, they're going to do next. And here I am, I'm just kind of wandering. And I never felt I was really grounded, but I made it through, right? I, I, I finally got to that point in my, my career where I, I was able to buckle down, white knuckle it, get through it. And that, that's been a pattern throughout my life. I can typically do that, but I'm not sure if I don't take the time to reflect, what, what was that like? Um, I'm not sure that I got anything to share with anyone um, or anything that's going to sustain me long term from, from that engagement. So something that I've come to realize and started to realize about that college time, um, I actually wound up with a, a college roommate or a couple of college roommates who I actually got that, that flicker of, of hope and trust and faith from. Um, they were um, able to allow themselves to be a little bit vulnerable in front of me and um, I saw that vulnerable in juxtaposition to them being strong and courageous and doing things. I said, boy, may maybe there's a way to do this. Maybe there's a way to do both in one's life. And of course, it was just a fleeting instinct at the time. I had no idea how to operationalize that, how to bring that into my life. But um, it, it gave me some hope. And I really, truly remember those people decades later and the impact that they had on me because they gave me hope at a time where I was pretty lost, at least lost up in my own head and in my own thoughts. Despite the fact that if you looked at me from the outside, you'd say, David, you look very successful, you're well-dressed, you're well-groomed, you're succeeding in class, you seem to have some great relationships, you seem to have great fun, um, and you seem to be a valued-centered individual, you, you lead a life of integrity, but internally, that, that conversation was going on and it is making for a very isolating and lonely um, time where I, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen next. So anyway, I, I got through college. And um, yeah, let me just let me just stop you right there. I mean, just uh, sure. I mean that that's that's I was I was outside of, of you. So like like mm -hmm. I, I saw the successful man. I saw the guy who had it all. Like when mm -hmm. I first met you, you were living on 
a peninsula on one of the neat lakes in Wisconsin. Like you had amazing kids, amazing wife, like you still do, like you were successful in, in sailing. It seemed like you had, you know, a good amount of money and very comfortable. It's just like, wow, this guy is someone that I want to grow up to be like. But then all of a sudden it was like, hey, David turned himself into uh, what was it called? AA or recovery or whatever it was. It was like, like it was like we all just had no idea, and it's just those, that inner that inner storm you were you're dealing with your entire life, whether it was deep rooted, you know, from from being adopted or what. But mm -hmm. it was it was such an eye opening, and and I I heard it too. Like I was like, like wow, what 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 does what does he know or what does he do? And even I think it was right around the time when we got married, um, Victoria and I. And that's we just uh, celebrate ten years, and honestly we. We actually invited you to um, the wedding, and um, I think we ended up talking to your wife Vicky. But uh, silently, I, I I wanted you to recover. I wanted you to succeed in getting rid of the substance abuse or alcoholism, whatever it was. And mm -hmm. I was like, I hope they say no because I wanted you to succeed. Mm -hmm. I knew in in a year, five years, ten years, mm -hmm. you'd be uh, you know even a greater person than you than I thought you already were. So I just want to add that out to you. I don't even if you well, knew that. Hi. No, no, I really appreciate that perspective because uh, that um, checking my perspective is exactly how I learned. So learning that, okay, my analysis at that time was I was really put together on the outside. I was putting up this great facade. And I, I had to, unfortunately, part and parcel of that is I had to work immensely hard to do that. It was exhausting to keep up that charade, right, to, to keep up that adaptation and never being myself. So at the end of the day, I was literally exhausted. I was emotionally spent from having to guard myself so thoroughly throughout the day and to put forth this image that everything was great. And it wasn't that everything wasn't great. I had a great family, I had a great lifestyle. It's just that everything was great and there were some troubles. And there were those troubles that were insidiously creeping into my life that I had no capacity to deal with. And as a matter of fact, you know, what I would tell you in, in, in uh, your original question, what's my background? There was a time in my teenage years when I happened upon alcohol, just like many people do. I, 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 didn't, I didn't run to it for any specific reason. I found it in social situations. But I'll tell you what, I know that when I first started to drink, when I first had some alcohol, it changed things for me. It changed my perspective entirely. What, what it did is, is you know, a lot of people said, well, it took away that social anxiety. And to agree, that's probably true. Um, but that's not ultimately what it did. What it ultimately did is it allowed me to feel connected to some people. I literally felt that the people that I was partying with, we had found the answer. We'd found the solution to connection and that we were connecting on a much more meaningful level than anybody can. Now, that was the perception in the moment. As I look back upon that, not at all. It was mostly superficial. Right? You can imagine barroom conversation. Not that it wasn't fun and high, full of adrenaline and full of fun activities that were associated with it, but looking back on it, I can tell you that I have a problem with alcohol because of that very reason, because it changed my perspective. It didn't just lower my inhibitions for a little while and make me more socially able to, to adapt to a situation. It literally changed my reality. And, and knowing that now is, is what has allowed me to change that perception. So in high school, finding that was a big deal. What it also meant, however, is it meant I wasn't going through those normal developmental milestones that people have to go through. I wasn't going through emotional struggles and working through them and talking to people and building trust with individuals and, and turning to my parents when I needed to. My go-to coping mechanism starting in high school and beyond in an increasing manner 
became alcohol, which was really a, obviously a problem because it meant when I stopped drinking that alcohol, I had to go back and I had to figure out how to move through those, through those developmental milestones to get where it's going to today. And, and as you suggested, when, when you looked at me, one would never know that I had to do that. One, one would have thought, this guy has done that. This guy has got the, the world by the tail. He knows what's going on. He seems relatively confident, maybe sometimes a little egotistical, but that also comes with, with success sometimes. And I, I don't want that to be my, my storyline anymore, but some people might have seen that at the time. Um, and you're right. When, when I decided to change my lifestyle and to reexamine everything that was going on, I had to go away to do that. I had to get away from some influences People necessarily have a gut check. They look at themselves and say, whoa, 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 is my perception wrong? Did I not see this about him? Or is there something about my lifestyle that I better check right now? Because it really makes people think and it's really disruptive. And ultimately that's been a good thing. It's been a good thing for myself because it's a philosophy in which I stand. I examine my perceptions every day as often as I possibly can. And I encourage others to do that. And obviously that message is, is something that, that's resonated. So. Back to, back to the story, out of college, I went literally from my, my college to the, the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange, and I started knocking on doors. I just wanted to be in that environment. I had a brother-in-law who had started there about six months before. He described it to me, and it seemed like everything I could ever imagine. It was exciting. It was uh, statistically based. I had a big background in finance and math, and it seemed like a great place to be besides that. I hadn't really adapted to life. I hadn't really given a lot of thought to what are my strengths, what type of job am I looking for, what values can I embody in a career going forward. That was that was a conversation or a thought process I wasn't capable of having because I hadn't gone through those developmental milestones that allowed me to be a goal setter, to be in, introspective, and to figure these things out. So I went down to the floor, and it was one of the wildest things in the world. I got down to the floor in 1982, just to give you an example, a Dow Jones Industrial Average, which today is at 24,000 and change, was at 787 at the time. And it was like the Wild West. Nobody understood mathematical relationships between different types of investment vehicles, and the lifestyle that most people led was insane. But, but I assimilated into that immediately. And ironically enough, I went to work for a group where the three partners were raving alcoholics. By 10 o'clock in the morning, Marcus had opened at 8.30. By 10 o'clock in the morning, my bosses would be across the street in a bar. And the phone calls would start coming and they'd start coaxing me down there, trying to get me to come. Thankfully, I never succumbed. I was able to separate that, that professional relationship with what I needed to do. I also had some good confidants who said, you know, don't, don't get wrapped up with those guys. You're going to get a bad rep around here. And it's going to limit your, your opportunities. At the same time, I realized, boy, if I'm down in the bar with them, who's doing the work? This, this, this firm is going into the, 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 the tank. So anyway, it was a great life lesson as to what my perception was at the time, right? There are all these rules in life and everybody followed the rules. Then I walked into this other world where it was, it was in fact, otherworldly, where people didn't follow the rules and I had to deal with it. And, and again, I wasn't really capable of dealing with it in the beginning. It wasn't very tough. I, I had so much work to do and so much of a learning curve, I was able to immerse myself in that, that opportunity. Over time, however, the stressors became greater than my coping skills would allow, and I turned to alcohol on an increasing basis. Did it affect my performance at work? Tough to say. It affected my attitude, certainly, so that would have affected my performance at work. Did it, did it physically hinder me from doing my job? No, I never came to work hungover. And anyway, that would, that would make me dangerous or make me um, risky as an individual who's, who's dealing in, in lots of uh, figures and money. Um, but again, it was a life's lesson. As it turns out, all three of those gentlemen died of their um, addiction later on in life. And it was a, 
an unfortunate lesson, but it was something that, that certainly informs my story and something that perhaps I could have paid a little more attention to earlier in my life, but, but oftentimes lessons that we learn take a little greater amount of time than that. So got into that great career and I was very successful at it. Um, I started, I remember, at $9,000 a year and by the end of the first year I'd been bonus multiple times and given lots of responsibility. And I felt like I really belonged there. And, and, and that's a really um, important distinction there because I don't always feel like I belong. That's, that's my thought process. If something's wrong with me, I don't belong here because you guys are going to figure out I don't belong here. So um, I felt like I belonged there in, in, in a way and it, was, and it was exciting and it was creative and it was inspiring and despite the fact that i had friends and family who thought that i was a menace to society who thought i was just a gambler um, what we truly did is we tra traded futures and options and i truly believe that we were the people who allowed liquidity in the markets and allowed people to insure their pension funds and do those things so it was it was not a fulfilling in the sense of being empathetic and helping other human beings but there there was a bigger purpose i felt and that allowed me to, to sleep at night and to stay in that business and, and i learned a lot of great things in that business, but I was great at what I did. Um, you know, in retrospect, I have to say, I thought I was pretty mean at what I did, right? I had a prof professional persona where I walked into the training pit and I had to look like that confident guy. And sometimes being that confident guy meant I had to make you look bad or make lesser, make you look lesser than. And that is my recollection of that time. And, and as it turns out, I've only done that on less than a handful of occasions because people I've run into have said, David, you know, I don't know where that perspective comes from. In fact, you were the most kind, supportive, inspiring person I ever met in the trading floor. You gave me the time of day when no one else gave me the respect. You took the time to converse with me when, when nobody else would. So isn't it interesting that when I'm looking back at my past, I think, well, I was just a total, you know what, um, total a bad dude back, back in the time. And in fact, my perspective was, was warped the other way, right? That, that, that wasn't the case. So anyway, it was a matter of getting in touch with the reality. I had to go back and I had to examine the context in which these events occurred to, to be helpful. You know, but before getting involved in that job, I'd gotten married, and uh, my wife and I are going to celebrate 34 years of marriage coming up very soon. Awesome. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, in this day and age, that's a big deal, because um, we know a lot of people who, whose relationships suffer and maybe don't survive in this day and age. Absolutely. Um, but, but this was a big part of my life. You know, my wife was looking at me thinking... Boy, what you're doing is really risky. Um, you know, sometimes the markets are really volatile. Sometimes you guys have to stay overnight to make sure that you're ready for the next day. Is this something that's good for family life? And I keep convincing my wife and, and, and it had to be off. And I said, no, we're doing this for a reason. We're working really hard now so that we don't have to work really hard later. So please um, indulge me in this um, and it'll be okay. And in the beginning, that was okay. But I think she, she's a very wise person. She knows me very well. And she saw that I was turning to more and more unhealthy coping mechanisms as the stress built without me having those those reasonable reasonably developed coping mechanisms to turn to healthy coping mechanisms so you know the, the trajectory of that job was increasing responsibility increasing stress and increasingly nowhere to go with it so i went to that one coping mechanism that i knew would never fail me and that was alcohol and i mean that sincerely for me early on alcohol was a medicine and I, I'm really reluctant to say that because I've worked in hospital-based treatment and I know how some doctors might respond to that, but I truly believe that. It, 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 it solved the problem of this hole that I had in my soul of, of disconnection. It gave me the feeling that I was connected to somebody. And it worked really well until it didn't work anymore, until it boomeranged on me. So having built that career, we grew, um, I got together with a brother-in-law. Um, we started a trading partnership. We decided that we were going to invest heavily in infrastructure and technology at the time when a lot of people weren't. And actually it was an environment where 
quick money was quick money and people would rather buy nice cars and expensive houses than reinvest it and build a business. And thankfully our strategy um, worked and we built a, an options and trading firm into uh, about a 250 person operation and we were one of the, one of the, the best in the world at that time. Um, it came with incessant pressures. It meant that we traded during the day from 8.30 in the morning till 3.15 in the afternoon. Then we spent six hours managing the business at night. And it really, really built this stress and anxiety. There came a time where the global market started to heat up and we saw an opportunity. We actually reached out to some global investment banks and we tried to partner with them and actually wound up partnering with a global investment bank, which unfortunately added more stress in my life. It meant that I would be spending time not only in Chicago at my primary home, and not only spending some weekends out at Lake Bula in East Troy, which was their summer home, but I took an apartment out in New York and I commuted to New York every Sunday night, worked five days in New York, and then flew back home on the weekends. Um, and I was expecting to do this for about five years because as partnering with this investment bank, we had, we had drawn employment contracts that, that locked us in for five years. And it wasn't long before I realized this is not good. Um, these stresses are increasing. And I was sitting on the board of directors of the investment bank and and I was the youngest guy there by 20 years, of course, in that position. And um, worst of all, I was more isolated, right? So you, you paid attention, and I know you nodded before when I said I felt not only isolated, but I felt like I had no direction, like I didn't have a clue as to how to live life. Being in New York alone um, was not a good place for me to be. So I had only professional relationships. I had no personal relationships. So even at the end of a 12-hour day, being up inside my, my head didn't help. So I increasingly went to that go-to coping mechanism of alcohol. I did manage to stay successful, right? We, we still managed to run a successful business. I still managed to assimilate into this operation. I still managed to support their endeavors and I have managed to continue to support our Chicago business. And my partner who had moved to London to, to do that, I was still able to do that and we were all very successful. Thank goodness, after two years, the investment bank we had sold ourselves to sold itself to somebody else. And they had some regulatory problems because the, the, the person that bought them already had an operation like ours and the, the, the regulators in the United States didn't want these two competing operations. So the bank came to us and said, you know, we loved our relationship with you. You've taught us a lot, but we can't have you on our books. Would you like to buy yourselves back? And we did at, at a substantially reduced price from where we sold ourselves. And what that ultimately meant is accelerated our employment contracts to, to the two years that I had spent in New York rather than the five years. And to me, that was a major blessing. I don't know that I could have survived five years. Even when I was flying home, I'd spend time in the Admiral's Club at, at LaGuardia and, and down a whole bunch of bourbon before I could even deal with reality of getting on a plane and coming home. So thankfully that accelerated. So after two years, I came home and I talked to my wife, Vicki, and said, okay, what do we want? And she said, one house, one house and one life. Right, so let's get rid of the New York apartment. Let's get rid of the house in Chicago. Let's go to Southeastern Wisconsin where we, we love the family values that people exhibit there, where we have some friends who can support us, where we have some family that we'll see, and let, let's start a lives anew there. And I did. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing more dangerous than a guy with, uh, who's 35 years old with a lot of money in his pocket, who doesn't have a day job to go to, and who jokes that he's retired, or actually his friends joke that he's retired, because that means there are a lot of fun things to do. And of course, most of those fun things involved alcohol. And over that 10-year period, I keep thinking of the, the, the tune by Led Zeppelin called 10 Years Gone. It was like I lost 10 years of my life because it was mostly re revolving around turning to alcohol as a coping mechanism, not just to, to deal with stress. And you think, what stress do you have in your life? You're living a great life. You, you mentioned I was living out in this great point on this wonderful lake in Southeast Wisconsin. What stress? Well, I had that internal stress, right? I'm outwardly this great put-together guy. Internally, I'm a mess. 
constant stress. How do I make sure that nobody sees that I'm a mess inside? So, so that was part of stress, and it's part of pleasure, right? Let's not kid ourselves. Those who turn to substances for um, for coping mechanisms do so also out of pleasure, and there are, there are some pleasurable sensations that can come with, with substances. However, when they alter one's reality, I would I would suggest that that didn't work for me and others who, who might be in that boat should do do otherwise. So, so. 10 years of that time um, was nuts, and everything became a euphemism for drinking. So a snowmobile trip to the Upper Peninsula became a euphemism for drinking. Um, going to a sailboat regatta became a euphemism for drinking. Uh, spending time in the motorboat on the, on the weekends on the home lake became a euphemism for drinking. Going to see some buddies after work became a euphemism for drinking. So in my book, all of those opportunities provided me with an opportunity to drink in a less scrutinized way. And what I found in retrospect, not at the time, I probably should have known what was going on at the time, what I found out is that I was increasingly lowering my bar. I was increasingly putting myself in people who would, with people who would hold me less and less accountable to those very values that I, that I truly believed in inherently and that I exposed to others. And those were family values and values of integrity. And what happens was I, I, I wind up spending a whole lot of time chasing um, those feelings of, of relief from stress and pleasure. And uh, unfortunately, I began neglecting relationships with my wife and my children. And it was at that time that you alluded to when I took a step back and had to remove myself from that environment. And I did a total gut check on my life. And I said, this isn't working. Um, what do I need to do here? And of course, it wasn't that simple. It was this insidious creep that happened in my life. I'd been using alcohol to deal with stress and other things for decades by this point in my life. It was a lifestyle. I didn't know any other way. And what it involved, Chad, ultimately was a total disruption of my entire perspective. And I had to do that. I had to check every belief that I had. And I don't mean it as simple as I believe that baseball player is good. I mean, I, I had to check every perception I had about life and how I needed to alter my behaviors to operate in this, this thing we call life. That was a monumental task. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most single most difficult things I've ever done, not just stopping drinking. And, and I needed help to do that because there was a, there was a physical manifestation of that. I, I had to detox my body from the alcohol I'd been putting in for so long. But more importantly, I had to recheck my perspectives and align myself with those people who would ultimately help me. And since that time, it's, it's uh, to, to make a long story really short, and I don't want to dwell on the negative for too long, because it wasn't all negative. I, I mean, I made some great friendships during that time. I did have some great time with my family. I was there for them. And even though I call that period of time 10 years gone, I was there with my kids. I saw them at breakfast time. I got to see all their school activities. I supported them in their athletic and their, their stage and, and theatrical um, endeavors. And, and I was there. I truly was there physically for them. And they remember me being there. What they didn't know, because you mentioned it, and most people didn't know, is emotionally I wasn't there. Psychologically, I wasn't there for them. But I was there, which is better than not having been there, which is what happened when I was in New York. When I was in New York, for God's sakes, my kids were literally faxing to me their assignments and their art projects. It was, it was a really depressing, isolating, lonely time. Um, but, but I was with my family now, and there was hope. And, and they're all familiar with gave me the hope that, to do that gut check and to change my, my, my perspective. Since that time, I've um, endeavored to do a lot of work. I've done a lot of work on myself. I've volunteered in a lot of communities, and ultimately, it resulted in a change of career um, with me along with that change of life. I actually went back to graduate school. I got my master's degree in addiction counseling. I endeavored to get into the business of addiction prevention, treatment, and recovery management. 
Um, and for the last 10 years, that's exactly what I've been doing in different capacities. I started out um, with an organization named Hazelin, which is very well known in the addiction treatment field in Minnesota, progressed through um, several opportunities and several positions in their ranks, and then later on came to um, recently be employed in, uh, over the last two years by Rogers Memorial Hospital in Oconomowoc, Brown Deer in West Dallas, Wisconsin here as their director of addiction services. Um, and it's been an incredible adventure. Um, what I've learned is that my simple value of integrity can be uh, leveraged in many other ways. Uh, I found that I have an empathy for others and an ability to connect with them in a way that's um, unique. Um, I don't um, pretend to have the answer to addiction, but it seems that I'm able to connect with individuals on a level that sometimes others can't. I'm able to build trust with individuals, and to me, that's a lot of what life is about. It's building trusting relationships in order to do that hard work and to develop the, the appropriate coping mechanisms that we need to do. So I recently, uh, just at the end of the year, actually transitioned out of that role at Rogers Memorial Hospital, and um, I'm doing two things. Number one, I'm, I'm an independent addiction consultant um, in, a, in a local private practice organization by the name of Beacon Confidential LLC, and I can give you some details about that at the end of the broadcast. And I've actually released a book uh, by the name of Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth, which is ultimately a um, story of, um, I guess what I would say, a man relinquished, or a child relinquished, and, and a man um, re rebirth. Um, it's about my experiences with any number of things, and we can talk about that um, as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Incredible. I mean... I, I feel like uh, a lot of people can relate to your story, um, especially, you know, the male population, just because, you know, guys aren't necessarily known for emotions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I feel like with the high stress job that you have, I mean, everybody seems to be stressed nowadays. And I just seem like nobody's looking at the cause of their emotions and they're just suppressing it into, you know, the substance abuse. I mean, it, everybody out there i mean there's a very few people who are not you know what i mean so exactly. i mean if we could if we can kind of go down that road a little bit like 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 what do we need to do as a culture or um maybe as an example maybe you're just leading by example um, mm -hmm. how can we get other males to be like look it's okay to show emotion it's okay to say i love you it's okay to you know you know encourage your 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 kids or um you know it's okay to um, you know, tell your wife that you need help. Like, mm -hmm. it seems mm -hmm. like guys are, have been put on this pedestal and they have mm -hmm. to be the man of the house and they have to, you know, be amazing and take care of everything. But, you know, we've got emotions too and we struggle too and we need that help as well. So, exactly. Well, that's a great question and, and I think it's incredibly topical. Um, and I would come at that from a couple angles. You know, we have, we have seen recent studies that have suggested that men, it's not. You know, this notion that men don't have emotions or that men just stuff emotions can be correct, but, but sometimes there's more to it. What we're learning is that men sometimes truly struggle. Their brains, who are different than women's brains, truly struggle, and they struggle to put words to emotions. It's not that they don't feel things, right? And it's not that they, they don't understand that they're feeling things, and it usually manifests itself simply as quote-unquote discomfort. They feel uncomfortable about something, and that leads to an emotion. But men, more so in in large ways than women struggle to put language to those feelings and, and, and those emotions. And that, that, that is, is not only part of brain science, but it's also part of the way we've been socialized, right? I, I grew up in a world, Chad, it's probably a similar world that, that you grew up in. However, it, it is evolving and it's becoming easier, but my, the world I grew up in is 
okay, you're a man, you may or may not have problems. If you have problems, I want you to go away and I want you to solve them yourself. And once you've solved them, I don't want to hear anything about it. I don't want you to admit that you have the problems. I don't want to hear how you solved that problem. I don't want to hear how they're defining your life going forward. I just want you to know that you're put together. That, that's what's expected to you as a man. And that's the way I was socialized. And I, when I say I was socialized that way, no one ever gave me that message. My father never sat me down and said, this is what it means to be a man. You have to do that. But that's what society's lessons taught us, right? We, we were taught that that's the way men are supposed to conduct themselves. Thankfully, things are changing. Um, and what I would say about that is, um, from a simplistic perspective, keeping secrets doesn't work. And some of those things that I mentioned, right, that I had a problem, that I had to work to solve that problem, perhaps that I had to turn outside of myself to ask for help and solve that problem. And the fact that that problem actually has informed my outlook and my perspective on life, those are secrets if I don't share them. And I know our secrets keep us sick. And there are, there are actually scientific and medical ways to talk about this, right? They, they manifest distress. They do all kinds of things. They, they um, change the, the, um, the way our neurons react in our brain. And our secrets are not good for us. So suppressing those emotions that you talked about or the route to those emotions or how those emotions affected us is a very unhealthy adaptation for us. And one that, that simply can't work. Now, I'm not saying that someone should go to the podium and, and start talking about all their problems, especially if they're someone who is relied upon in, in, in a professional position, but this is an examination that I think is worthwhile for us to do and especially for men to do. And what I would say, and ultimately an answer to your question is, I think it's essential for men to find forums in which they can find people with whom they trust uh, people who will unconditionally accept them, who will validate their experiences and their phenomena in order that they can do this work and to examine their emotions. And ultimately, asking ourselves each day, what am I feeling? How are these emotions informing the way I'm treating myself, how I'm, I'm engaged in other relationships, and how I might have a relationship to something bigger than myself, are ultimately what ha men have to do. And to do that, we have to give ourselves a break. Oftentimes, people will look at me and say, yeah, that, that, that's really great theory, David. But, but how do I do that? I don't have any capacity to examine that. I don't have a format to do that. I don't have a construct. And I don't have a life philosophy that allows me to do that. Where do I start? And of course, there are lots of great things out there. But ultimately, what I would suggest uh, where people start is to find someone that they can relate to. Right? So what, what we're talking about here is stigma, right? The stigma surrounding being a male and having to be a strong male in society. So ultimately what I'm recommending is that we engage in some sort of stigma reduction. What, is, what, what does that mean? Well, one, despite the fact that we can talk about it all the time and despite the fact that professionals have been thankfully trained in stigma reduction, hopefully they, they've become better at having a dialogue and an empathetic dialogue with individuals like ourselves and men in general, um, the fact of the matter is, is we do better when we find someone that we really respect. And memoir or TED Talks or someone giving, you know, doing podcasts or video casts is the absolute perfect place to start. And what I would say is watch as much as you can, figure out what might resonate with you as an individual, and take what you like and leave the rest. And I mean that in the truest sense. I mean, do an examination of, of the values that surround me, these individuals, but look to them for how they have done exactly what we're talking about. Look for individuals who have, have found these realizations, who have healthily dealt with them, even though it might have taken them a long time, or them, even though they may have gone through, through some huge grief and pain. Um, see what that brought them to, to the other side. And ultimately, you, you said it at the end of your question, see how they conduct themselves in this day and age. Right? It would be really tough to listen to somebody who had a great experience if you didn't respect them, or if they treated people in a disrespectful, 
or not in a good way. So find uh, find somebody who has what you want. And find someone that you admire. And I don't mean that you put on a pedestal. I mean someone who has some characteristics and some experiences and perhaps who has a life philosophy that can help you. And I want to be careful about that. And I said philosophy for a specific reason. What we don't need are people who are going to give us a set of instructions. And self-help books are great for this. As a matter of fact, I can tell you, in all honesty, I've read hundreds, if not over a thousand self-help books. And ultimately, they may spark some... A whole bunch of them right here on this shelf right here. Exactly. exactly. They may spark some curiosity. They may spark some inspiration. But ultimately, it's like joining a health club in January. And by the third week of January, being, being done with your New Year's resolutions. It actually creates more problems than it helps because you're going, a person who goes and he reads these self-help books and there's no way oftentimes to operationalize the things in some of those self-help books because they come across as edict or they come across as dogma or they come across as creed. But ultimately what, what I'm suggesting is that when you find people who you can relate to and connect with, what you're looking for is a philosophy. What philosophy do they use to live their life? What skills do they have skills of resilience do they have to combat any challenges that they're going to meet in this day and age and how can you get closer to those individuals not as a stalker but how can you benefit from their philosophy in a way that you can adapt to tears and, and ultimately there's the secret to life it's a secret to men's life and the secret to everybody else's life it's not living somebody else's philosophy it's develop, developing a philosophy that that works for yourself that resonates with your true self that will sustain you no matter what happens in your life. And we all strive for that. We might not be able to put it in that language. That's my language. You may have your own. Others may have their own language. But ultimately, that's what we're striving to do. So, so what we need to do is we need to find people who have done that, who have shown us, hey, I can be, and here's the lesson again, because I told you about these individuals I met in college. Hey, there's someone who can be both strong and courageous and humble and vulnerable all at the same time. Amazing, amazing. And it's not just that those are the characteristics I like, it's like I can, it's that I can see those four main characteristics and say, look at how well they're treating that individual. That individual, despite all of their physical successes perhaps, looks like they're more at peace than anybody I've ever met. That person likes, looks like they're more able to handle a challenge than anybody I've ever run across. So please, by all means, I would encourage your, your viewers and your listeners to reach out to individuals and try to connect with some philosophies that they share with life. And there are any number of ways to do that. I mentioned these things. There are faith communities that can do that. There, there are certainly intellectual communities that can do that. There are certainly, in this day and age, mindfulness communities and, and other Eastern-type traditional um, communities that can help one to go through this, this, this analysis. And ultimately, I want to repeat, what we're looking for when you're looking for that person who wants to share their experience, strength, and hope, if you will, that you can connect to. We're looking for people who can unconditionally accept us and to validate our experiences. So you can imagine in, in my profession, I do with, and I'll give you a quick example of that. I deal with a lot of people who come not just with simple substance use disorders, but they come with other co-occurring conditions. And oftentimes they come with trauma. And trauma can be a very difficult thing for individuals to manage, and it can be a very difficult thing to professionally treat. But ultimately, um, what we have to do is we have to give individuals the safety with which to do whatever work is necessary to allow them to, to, to focus and to fulfill um, all of their, their goals in life today. So to do that, we have to validate them. So in, in, in an ultimate construct, it would basically be listening empathetically to a person's story. It might be about a person who had experienced some type of abuse as, as, as an adolescent 
that tried to share that story and who people around them just didn't believe them or didn't support them in that, or it, it never came to any reasonable conclusion or it never played out emotionally in any way, shape or form. That individual was not encouraged to, to explore that. They were encouraged to, especially if you're a male, repress that. Don't, don't talk about it. You go store that. You know, I'm you know, good luck with all of that. You go solve that problem and let me know what I can do once you solve that problem to, to better support you. Um, so what we have to do is we have to validate those experiences as individuals have. And once we take the time to validate those experiences, what we've done is we've created a, a community or an, an, a, a surrounding of safety. And ultimately, that's the word. Safety allows us to do this introspection, to do this work, to find the people that in our lives that we know can help us um, and, and to move forward. So it's a really long-winded answer to your very short question, what can men do? But, but ultimately, we can to connect is the first thing I would say. Find podcasts, find individuals with which we can find inspiration and creativity from those individuals who allow us to feel safe enough to begin a very sometimes difficult investigation is how are our feelings and how are our perspectives playing out? And more importantly, how are they playing out or how did they play out in our past? How do we think they're affecting our future and our fears and our anxieties? And how are they playing out in our ability to live life fully today? That's how men can do this. And, and I think the world is becoming a much friendlier place for that to happen. There are individuals who, like yourself, are doing this work, who are inviting people into the conversation. And um, I think the, the one caution is, and I, don't, I know you don't do this, but others do, be very wary of the people who think they can give you a bullet-pointed answer as to what your problem is. Life is not about an instruction manual. Instruction manual is about putting together your kid's bike at Christmas time or at the holiday time. Right? Find people who have a philosophy that they can share with you that can hold up no matter what that you can draw from. Yeah, there's uh, there's just so many points in there that I want to hit on, but um, I guess mainly, um, mainly you gave you know, an example of of how someone can take action. Um, but I feel like there's a step right before that, like how does someone realize that they need to take that step? Because typically the guy is the stubborn guy who's you know never going to make the change and you know, women seem to want to make a change a lot quicker than the men do. So is there, is for men, do they, do they just have to hit rock bottom or is there another trigger that could be there that someone could, uh, could see the necessity to change earlier, um, being more proactive in it? I think, that's a good, I think that's a good question. And certainly um, the notion of addiction or alcoholism that we've heard is that a person has to ultimately hit rock bottom before they're willing to change. And of course, that may be true because the definition of rock bottom is different from anybody and for everybody. Rock bottom for someone may be a DUI and winding up in prison, whereas for someone else, it may be, in my case, it may be just in a, a, a massive amount of emotional turmoil that, that is precluding me from, from leading a life that, that I want to lead and, and contributing to the relationships that are most important to me. So ultimately, I want to caution that no, one doesn't have to hit rock bottom. What one needs to do is gain perspective. And to gain perspective, there are a number of ways to do that. If one can begin the discipline, whether that be through a faith community, through, through a personal meditative practice, through a daily checklist of accountability, one should ask oneself, how are my behaviors in today helping me reach my goals? How are my behaviors today supporting my values? And if one can, can get to that, ultimately, one can do an analysis of their perceptions and reach out to others if necessary to find some help. But they can ultimately say, well, geez, you know, 
maybe I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm telling myself each and every day I want to be a family man, but I'm spending 80 hours of the week at work and it's not allowing me to access to my family. It's not allowing me to be um, responsive to their needs. And as a matter of fact, the longer I do this, the tougher it's going to be to, for me to reassimilate myself in that family because there's going to be so much that I missed. Is there something that I can do today to bring that value forthright into my life? And if I don't know the answer, then I can go out to these communities, I can go out to podcasts, I can go out to, to books, I can go out to the lecture circuit, and I can look at how others have done it. That, that, that's certainly one way to do it. The other way to do it is to put oneself regularly in a community of individuals who hold each other accountable. So right, men in this day and age typically don't hold each other accountable. We think we do. We think we're expected to meet a certain behavior criteria. We, we're expected to be successful. We're expected to exude professional and, and courteous um, appearances. We're supposed to do all of these things. But, but how do we know that, right? These are perceptions, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that I learned in my, my world, in my head, from society and, and my experiences and the phenomena that occurred to me, how when did I ever check those? So putting myself in a community of individuals where I can have these conversations and ultimately say, Chad, I give you permission to call me on my stuff. Please, please, if my perceptions are not in keeping with what I profess my values to be, I give you permission to tell me, hey, something's not wrong here, David. You might want to check that. Or David, can we want to explore that a little bit. So putting myself in that, in, that, in that trusting environment with individuals where we share like gold and like accountability is essential. It's essential. And ultimately, and we can talk about my book or not perhaps later, but ultimately that's what I've done. I've written this book and I put it out there and I've told the world, these are my philosophies. Please vet them. Please experiment with them. Please put them to the test. And please give me your feedback. Let me know how they resonate because what I know is nothing is static. My perception today may be different tomorrow. Hopefully it is. Hopefully I've learned something. Hopefully I've grown and developed more tomorrow. And I have a more broadened, um, more cohesive perspective tomorrow than I did today. But I can't do that without doing the work, the very work that you asked about. Getting, giving ourselves a gut check if we're able to. And again, with addiction, that doesn't work because addiction takes away our ability to, to work in, the, in that part of the brain, right? It, 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 the prefrontal cortex is what typically does this analysis, this work, and this is it's more your area than mine. I'm not a doctor and I have to issue that disclaimer, but ultimately addiction resides in the emotional part of the brain or the survival part of the brain, the limbic part of the brain, and people lose the capacity to do that. However, if, if we find that we can get them in the community of, of accountability, then perhaps they can change their perspective or perhaps they can change their behaviors long enough to get healthy enough to see a new perspective. So that's the case. And that's why I suggest the two, because if we could do that, why wouldn't we have done it already? Right? Why, why wouldn't we pick up a self-help book and say, okay, I got it. Check. I got all of that. I've done my daily analysis. These are the things I'm doing to support the, my, my values and my, my goals. These are the things that are taking me further away from my goals. And here's the behavior I need to, to go through. It doesn't always happen. And sometimes in life, life gets really stress, stressful and we need help to do that from somebody else. We might need to turn to a professional to do that. So um, one of the things that I would say is that, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been unheard of for me to consider going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Men would never have done that. And if they did it, they, they would have admittedly been pretty sick in their own minds and never talked to anyone else about it. As a matter of fact, men are so socialized that they, if they had done it, they'd probably come home to their wives or their the significant others or their partners and felt guilty or shameful that they had to do that. They felt effective that they had to engage in that relationship. Now, there are many professionals in the, in the healing professions, including psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors who have been trained in this, life coaches, um, 
individuals such as yourself involved in, in all aspects of wellness who can help individuals do this. And ultimately, here's, here's, the, here's the gut check. Do I have a lot of people in my, I ask myself, do I have a lot of people in my life who make life easy for me? Or do I have a lot of people in my life who tell me the truth? There was a time that you talked about when you saw me operating in the world, looking like I was all put together, when the majority of people in my life blew smoke up my backside. And, and, and as someone who's been trained, that, that is a literal thing. There was a time at the, at the beginning of the 1900s where directors and maybe quacks before them believed that if- For drowning, right? We're, we're, we're pumped into someone's anterior side that that would uh, um, solve their medical ills. And thus came the term blowing smoke up one's backside. I think, I think it was for drowning. I think if they, if they came across someone who was drowning, they would put smoke up there behind, and that was supposed to bring them back to life. Yeah, I've, I've heard that and read that, yeah. Makes sense. And then, of course, the, the notion grew, and the fallacy grew, and it became the, the, the salvation of all else. But, but ultimately, that's what I have to remind myself. I have a lot of people who are yes people to me, yes men and women who, yes, David, yes, you're right, David, yes, who didn't want to upset the boat, because when David was happy, things were good. And this included my, my wife and my children. I don't question what's going on here because if you do, who knows where it's going to lead. That's great. And there are people like that. And of course, we, we need to be affirmed in any number of ways and we need to be accepted. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about finding people in our lives who we've given the permission to, as I mentioned earlier, to call us on our stuff and to, and to do that work with. It could be anyone. It could be a close friend. It could be a partner. It could be a professional. And doing that work regularly and trying to find a, a, a a more methodological way to do it is what has worked for me. Some people can do the work when, when it needs to be done, I need to do it regularly because of what I found in my life for whatever reason, whether it was due to being relinquished or due to having had alcoholism and recovered from that, what I know is that if I'm not constantly checking my perception, it has a way of, of dominating me rather than me being uh, connected and foundationally attached to it. So I, I need to bring that consciousness into my life often and do that gut check and ask, what do I know today? Am I doing things that support my values? Is there someone I should be talking to? Because it looks like I've gotten away from this and I don't know what happened. Something insidiously crept into my life and I don't know how. Is there someone I can talk to about this? And at times in my life, I, I have turned to a professional um, twice on occasion, but mostly I, I have worked very hard over the last 10 or 12 years to build a community of people who can ultimately not only support me and validate me and accept me unconditionally of who I am, but also call me on my stuff when, when, when necessary. And, and, and they're not mean about it. They're just direct about it. And I know that they mean well. I know that they don't have ulterior motives. I know that their motivation is not to manipulate me. Their motivation is, is help me to be healthy and because I've given them permission to do that. And that's the key, right? Giving them permission. Don't expect people to do it, right? Because, because if you haven't given them permission to do it, you're going to always wonder what their motives are. Is this person telling me this to motivate me to behave a way that they want me to motivate? Or do they truly have my best interest at heart because we are together connected and allowed ourselves permission to do this with one another? And that's a tough conversation with men to have. I mean, it sounds like a relationship most of us don't have. But, but I would suggest that there are lots of people, and I have evidence of this, there are lots of people out there who are, are absolutely in need of having these conversations, absolutely desirous of having these conversations and would absolutely enjoy immensely finding someone to have those conversations with today. Um, it does take a little bit of a work. It, work. it takes time to build trust. And it particularly takes time to build trust with people who inherently don't have trust or have had a negative, um, a negative influence or negative phenomenon in their lives that prohibit them from completely trusting. My experience was 
But when I started to go through this, I turned to some faith communities and tried to engage in their creeds and their beliefs. And ultimately, I, it wasn't that I didn't trust their, their philosophies and, and their knowledge, it's that I didn't trust the individuals who were reporting what the facts were. I, I struggled with relationships with people I didn't know, people I didn't know who were trying to, again, tell me things. And I wondered about their motivation. Are they trying to manipulate me to get me to be a member of their church? Are they trying to change my perspective so that they don't have to consider their own? Are they, are they using fear and shame as a motivator? In which case, I have to run screaming because people who try to, to shame me are not are healthy people to have in my life. So I have to do that investigation, but it takes a while. It takes a while to build this trust. So anyway, they implore not only um, the men in your audience, but anyone out there to find these relationships with whomever you can to trust and do the best you can. The caveat is, is we're all human beings. And sometime, even the person that you trust the most is going to seemingly act in a way that seems um, untrustworthy or not in your best interest. We're human beings, we're fallible. Our minds are not perfect. We don't have the answers. We don't have enlightenment to the degree that we, we, we would like to have it or think we have it or need to have it. So be aware that we all make mistakes and what we do our best. And what I'm suggesting is aligning yourselves with people who try to do their best. And ultimately, you find the form to do that. If you don't know, find someone you can ask, who, 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 who should I be talking to about this? Because there are a lot of people who are out there doing it. They might not be in the public eye. They're not, might, they might not be that business leader in our local community standing at the podium being vulnerable, but they exist and they may be operating at a different level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that helps our audience out tremendously. And, and your, your, your book is called Parallel Universes. Correct. And so if you, yeah, just how do we get the book? Um, sure. Has it been released? Um, just yeah. tell me about that. Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth, a memoir, it was released. It became available on Amazon Kindle on February 15th. It began shipping both from Amazon and from my local publisher, Henschel House Publishing, uh, just this week. So people have it in their hands. I will be doing some local events, um, and you can find me out on social media. You can either either check Facebook for Parallel Universes or David, middle initial B, Bowl author, that's me. And you can, you can look to some events while I'll be appearing in public, talking a little bit more about that book and ultimately allowing myself to, to be connected to, right? And reaching out to people who perhaps can use some of my philosophies in their lives and ultimately who can look back at me and say, I vetted your philosophy and this works and this doesn't work for me and let's talk some more about this and together we create a bigger community. But, but, but that, that's one way to take a look at me. So if you, if you want to examine the book, uh, you can do so at my webpage. My author page is David, middle initial B, bowl.com. David B, bowl.com. Talks about a little bit about myself. There's a little bio, a little bit of the history that we talked about here. Um, going in depth in some different areas. And there's a way to take a look at the book and to connect with me on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And I invite um, inquiries. Um, um, please reach out with any questions, comments, concerns you might have. If you read the book, great. I'd love to chat with you about it. Yeah, if, if someone has time, I'd love to meet them in person. I'll certainly be at Books and Company or Economic. I'll be at uh, the Roots Cafe or Coffee Barn Cafe in Economic coming up soon. I'll be at, um, where will I be? I'll be at a couple bookstores downtown on the east side of Milwaukee as well. Um, and I can be reached elsewhere. Um, and they can find us, obviously, if they're listening to this podcast, they can hear this. And if they go to my author page, they can see about some other interviews and some other podcasts and some radio and TV interviews I'll be doing in the future. So that, that's one way to do it. Another way, if you're looking for professional assistance, and then it relates maybe to a substance use disorder, some mental illness, I also 
operate my private practice that I referred to earlier, Beacon Confidential, and you can find me at beacon, B-E-A-C-O-N, confidential.com. There you can find not only my email address, but a phone number if you have some more urgent needs. I work with both individuals and their families and partners and friends and colleagues in supporting them to ultimately um, reach, reach the goals and, and uh, uh, develop and adapt more healthy, healthy coping mechanisms in their life. So that'd be one way to find me. That's awesome. I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like it's necess- necessary to say, like for anybody who's listening, it's just like as, as little of a problem or as big as a problem, it doesn't matter. Just reach out, right? Just, just, you know, squash it when it's small. Don't wait till it's bigger. Like it's okay. Like, you know, whatever you've struggled in the past, like it's okay. Absolutely. Okay. Like, like you, you wouldn't be who you are today if it wasn't for your struggles in the past. Agreed. So like, like all the great, all the great people in, in the world, whether they're dead or alive, all of them overcame, you know, great um, obstacles. So whatever you've gone through in the, in the past, is just making you stronger. So I just reach out to all those people listening. Just, just, it's okay. Struggles are real, mm-hmm. but things can change and life can get great. So well said, well yeah. said. And you know, what I would suggest to you is that if you struggle with that, and most of us do, most of us struggle to reach out for help. So if, if that if that is your, the case, I would invite you to recontextualize that, to, to re-examine your perspective on that and, and say, am I really reaching for help? Or can I rationally and truly and honestly say, I'm reaching out for a new perspective? That may, that may be the difference between actually doing it and not doing it. Because us human beings, especially us men in the socialized environment in which we live in, are not taught to ask for help. Not even with our primary care physicians. You know, there are studies out there who say we don't tell our primary care physicians everything about ourselves or everything that they need to, to make a reasonable diagnosis. Why are we doing that? I don't know. I don't know. We don't want to look as men. We don't want to look weak. We don't want to look like we have a problem. We don't look like there's a problem that we can't solve. So if you can't contextualize asking for help, at least find some people who can offer a new perspective and perhaps check you on your perspective. That might be a different way to do it. And that might invite some people into that conversation who ordinarily can't get there. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, it's it's great to see uh, the vulnerability that you've you shared and just how open you are to it. And you know, if we can reach one person and save their life, I think this is worth it. And um, I don't know if, if it's safe to say, like, if 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 you didn't make the change, do you feel like you'd be alive today? Do you feel like you'd be in prison? Do you feel like you'd be divorced? What do you, what would you say? Well, that's a great question. You know, ultimately, what I would tell you is that by the time I stopped using alcohol as a coping mechanism, two things were going on. Not only was I physically in trouble, I had had two grand mal seizures. I had cholesterol or liver GGTs over a thousand. Um, I had anxiety. I was taking 11 different medications. And literally, when I got up in the morning, I felt like my my heart was going to explode through my chest. So physically, uh, if, if, I, if I had not stopped that um, ingesting chemicals, I believe that that would have led to someplace really bad. Would it have been instant death? I don't know. But what I do know is, as a recovering person, as someone who has worked in the addiction prevention, treatment, and recovery management field, is that a lot of listed causes of deaths are, are directly attributable to alcohol, but not listed as alcoholism. So, so would that have killed me? I honestly believe that. 
In terms of the slice psychological and emotional impact, I would also tell you, Chad, that if I had not endeavored to do this work, to get clear, to get this new perspective, that my maladaptive coping mechanisms would have caved in on me somehow. What does that mean? I don't know. Would, would, they, would they have shot off in terms of some anxiety and depression? Would I have ultimately contemplated suicide? I, I can't say that for sure, but I know that I would have been increasingly emotionally unhealthy, and we know that that doesn't lead to good places. That leads to not only additional physical ailments, but that lead, leads to relationship issues and ultimately issues of self-distrust. And when someone doesn't trust oneself, there's not a lot of places to go. It's very difficult to do the things that we're talking about doing and the work that we're talking about doing unless one can ultimately get to that position of, of trust. Um, I don't know if we're near the closing enough, but that reminds me, if I, if I have the time, just to say one quick thing. Yeah. What we have learned as professionals, and there are increasing studies about this, and it, it mostly relates to mothers, but it also relates to both parents. And what we've learned, and this is overly simplistic, but, but this is a, a layperson's way of understanding some very complicated data. What we've learned is that if a parent can tell or describe an emotionally coherent narrative about themselves, right? To do exactly what you and I are talking about, not just talk about here's all the milestones I reached in my life, but here's why, here's what my perspectives were, here's what the context was, here's what I learned from it, and here's what the philosophy is going forward today. If a parent can do that, their child, their biological child and their adopted child has the ability and the, the possibility of doing that at a much increased rate than the general population. They have the ability to do that. And what's the benefit of doing that? Well, having an emotionally coherent narrative allows people to be at peace with themselves, to reach their goals, to be attached and connected to themselves, to others in meaningful ways and to something bigger than themselves. So having said that, that is so important. And ultimately, it doesn't answer your question, but it's something that I think is really important to say uh, because as a parent, and one of the turning points in my life was when my kids were born, it informed, and I don't want to give the book away, but it informed a lot of my, my decisions about how to conduct myself and how to get sober and how to examine my past, because I, I owed it to my children to give them information. So ultimately, what I'm suggesting is doing this work that we're talking about today, developing this emotionally coherent narrative is the ultimate legacy we're gonna leave for, leave for our children and for those around us. And, it's so, and for me, that's a value, it's very important. I realize that not everybody has, has siblings and heirs, but um, we do have friends and we do have family that we can pass this along to. And, and to me, I believe I owe that to the people around me. Yeah, we call that the, the rock, rock rocking chair. You know, yeah. so you, you look, look at end of life. You know, what, how do you want people to, to remember you? If you wanna you know, look back at your life and have regrets and, and just you know be unhappy, or do you want to leave the legacy of of you know, raising the bar and you know, having an amazing healthy family life and, and relationships and love and so that, that's exactly. amazing. So well put. I appreciate everything. Exactly. So yeah, um, I th I think we have have gotten uh, a lot of information out there, and I think there's a lot of answers for people. And um, yeah, just if people can reach out to anybody. Uh, today's day and age is with the internet is just it's so easy just to, to 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 do a quick Google search. There's so many options out there where you can just reach out to talk to people for free. They can call David. They can go to your website, read the book. You know whatever you need to do, uh, just start somewhere. Right? Go Absolutely. go to TED, TED Talk videos. Go to YouTube. Whatever it takes. You're not alone. I can guarantee you that everybody's struggling in their own way. It's just how you get to the cause of of your emotions. So. Well, yeah, thank, thank you, Dave, for sharing. It's very, very amazing. Um, 
I couldn't have said that better myself. That was very well put. Absolutely very inspiring. Thanks for that. Yeah, all right. But yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure we can go you know, for hours more, but I think this is a good place to stop. And um, if we ever need to in the future, we could love to have you back on for, for part two. Great, um, I welcome that chance, you bet. Perfect, all right, well, thank you, David. Appreciate everything and um, I'll, I'll post the links and everybody can just click on it. And, um, and I know you're very open to talking to anybody Absolutely. Um, how big or small, so. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity for sharing. I appreciate it. I appreciate getting caught up with you a bit. Um, we probably knew this all along. But we have lots in common and I, I appreciate that. I was able to uh, relate to you as well and that's helped, helped me as well. So thanks, Chad. All right. Well, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.